Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for May 19th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we are going to get back to what we do. I would say best. Others might not. But we are going to look at a few topics this week, discuss them from a number of vantage points, making sure to do our absolute best, even though we are imperfect, to do our best to engage in a good faith discussion and to make sure that we are pulling ideas that hold up under scrutiny, no matter where they come from, doing our absolute best i guess i really want to stress that this week doing our best to keep we're doing you our best ourselves. guys we are we're trying so hard just to keep you and ourselves adequately informed we're trying to make sure the lights stay on we're trying to keep food on the table we're doing our best guys um, those ends man they gotta meet yeah so we we uh, we recognize that we aren't perfect. We don't know everything. We know that we aren't the only people who see things in certain ways, and we don't sit on top of the ivory tower. Maybe we sit on top of a wooden pedestal. Maybe a soapbox. Man, we're coming at Definitely you from the top of the soapbox. Yes. Um. Although I don't think ever in my life I've seen an actual soapbox, but you know, that's how turns of phrases happen from a different era. But anyway, hey, Evan. Hey, Joe. What do you want to talk about? Well, unfortunately, this week, I don't have something that is uh, a topic that I really want to talk about as much as it's something that I feel we must discuss, and that is the tragic murder of Ahmad Arbery. This has been in the news, and honestly, it's something that I probably should have brought up a couple weeks ago when it came into light, but it's it's been very difficult for me to interface with it, and it's something that I have avoided reading too much about because it's difficult, and I know that hearing about it will upset me, but that's not, you can only do that for so long before you have to face this type of thing head on. So that is what I will be talking about today. Ahmad Arbery was a 25-year-old black man living in Glynn County, Georgia. And in February, he was murdered while out on his daily jog. He was unarmed and appeared to be posing no threat to anyone in the area. However, two men followed him and murdered him by shooting him. He was shot three times. As I mentioned, this happened all the way back in February, but it didn't gain national headlines because there wasn't much to report. No arrests were made. No real media coverage happened. However, a couple weeks ago in early May, video of the murder was released online, and this is what kicked off the national firestorm. I have not watched the video as an extension of this idea that I think it would be very painful to watch and to confront on that level. I've done it before 
with other violent acts in the past, and I, I've had that discussion with myself internally, and at least at this point, I don't think that I have the stomach for it, and I don't think that I will gain too much from witnessing it firsthand. I think that there's power in those types of clips, but we have to gauge our own ability to process them at any given point. What the video showed was that, uh, from what I've read, Arbery was unarmed and accosted, followed in a truck by two white men and in another truck by another white man who ended up recording the murder on video. And after a brief scuffle, he was shot and died as emergency responders were coming to the scene. The men who shot Arbery were Gregory and Travis McMichael, a father and son who lived in the area where he was jogging. Apparently, there had been a few robberies reported in their neighborhood, and although not all of the reported robberies ended up getting told to the police, it's very... the, the, the stories on what the real threat of these robberies was has changed greatly and has seemed to have been constructed at times to make the, the murder appear justified when it clearly was not. In fact, uh, that day when Arbery was jogging, he received two 911 calls just for his mere presence. There are some reports that he may have been stopping to look a little too long at a house that was under construction, but nothing that really rises to the level of suspected burglary. However, when talking to police, the McMichaels said that Arbery matched the description of the man who had apparently been committing these burglaries, even though they had been scantily reported. However, during the police call, McMichaels, McMichael told dispatchers that he didn't recognize the man. So they, they clearly did not recognize him as a burglar, or at least of the burglar that they were looking for when they called the police that day. But in the aftermath, in attempting to justify their story, they changed it to make it seem like they were vigilante heroes, even though they did not adhere to the applicable stand-your-ground or citizen's arrest laws because they didn't see him in the act of committing a crime, and they followed him outside of their own property. And it's just really tough for me to be confronted with another story of someone living in this country who was doing something absolutely benign, going on a run unarmed, and was murdered, and nothing was done. Finally, just recently, the McMichaels were arrested and charged with murder, but it wasn't until after the video surfaced and the huge public backlash occurred. Ahmaud Arbery was 25 years old. I'm 25 years old. It, it shouldn't take something so superficial as being the same age to make it hit harder, but it just does for me to know that there is someone who 
is in my peer group, the only difference being the color of his skin, and whatever happens with prosecuting these men, and they should be prosecuted, it won't bring him back. And that's a hard reality that we have to grapple with. I'm not sure I have any galaxy brain revelation here other than to say that Ahmad Arbery should be alive and it hurts my soul that he is not. It it really brings back memories of the Trayvon Martin murder where a, a Florida teenager was murdered by a man, George Zimmerman, even after police dispatchers told him not to pursue Martin. And again, Martin Tray- Trayvon Martin case was really eye-opening for me, again, because we were the same age at the time of his murder. And I know that I'm coming at this from an extraordinarily privileged perspective, but it haunts me that we live in a country where people's lives, young people's lives can just be taken for no reason. And that even after the fact, justice is slow to be administered or potentially not at all. My heart is with the families of Ahmad Arbery with his family. And I, I hope that this case continues to get attention and that we can get some semblance of justice here. Yeah. Some things uh, stand out in my mind. So one is that like, even if that, like, even if he had been the burglar who had been burglarizing that neighborhood, that is not grounds to kill somebody or it's not attempt a death to sentence. kill somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. Like this is why I get somewhat ups. Like I go somewhat back and forth on, you know, protecting your, uh, you know, protecting your house. Like if somebody breaks into your house, like, yeah, it's very dangerous. You don't know what's going on, but then at the end of the day, do you, you know, is there enough danger that you should be able to take someone's life, even if they're not directly going to threaten yours? But I mean, you know, heat of the moment, all that stuff, I can understand. But this guy was just out jogging. And even if it was like a burglar running away from a scene, that's not cause to shoot somebody at all. These men, like, it's, it's, it's important to note the elder McMichael had formerly worked for the police department as an investigator but he's not a law enforcement agent. He did not have any legal obligation or public defending duty to get in his car of his own volition and chase Ahmad Arbery down. What would you do if you were minding your own business and two men with guns hanging out of the back of a pickup truck started chasing you there there is no way for you to do anything other than run as fast as you can and apparently for them that was a big enough admission of guilt to take his life 
And I also go back and forth on sort of stand your ground laws because as Joe, as you say, Joe, there's a huge degree of uncertainty if someone enters your space and violates the sanctity of your home. But when you follow someone and chase them down, any pretense of justification evaporates. Yeah, that's why uh, there are a lot of states that have the kind of uh, retreat rules where it's like, if someone like breaks into your house, you're supposed to try and retreat to somewhere else to try and avoid, you know, to flee the scene from trying to avoid getting hurt by them. And then if they, you retreat and then they still come after you specifically, then you are legally able to act against that um, with, you know, uh, deadly force. But this is not like any sort of concept of stand your ground laws. This is like going, you know, outside your grounds um, to go and kill this person. And it's uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. But then another point that I wanted to make was that it's it's very interesting how and I saw this on Twitter that every time a black man, I mean, for the most part, a black man gets shot and killed for apparently no good reason. There's always an attempt to fill in a narrative that gives some sort of credibility to why they were shot. And in this one, it's either a the, you know, the history of some burglaries in the area or or b the the uh, the fact that he went and looked at a house that was under construction and somehow that was merit for killing them like that would like that's suspicious enough that maybe we should give these people the okay and give them the grounds to kill this man which is just flat out ridiculous it wasn't Um, even the mcmichael's property in question there was another man in the neighborhood named larry chambers who ended up recording video of several people throughout the several weeks in february ending up on his property but chambers did not ever report it to law enforcement and he didn't ask the mcmichaels to do anything they murdered this man for looking at the house of their neighbor and yeah it it is just heartrending well, it also makes me think of cases of like Eric Garner and Michael Brown, where Eric Garner had, uh, you know, he was selling loose cigarettes in uh, on the streets of New York City, which is illegal. But the police came and used a chokehold on him, which restricted his breathing. And the move was also banned by the NY police. And it ended up killing Eric Garner. And Michael Brown, you know, he had been suspected in a uh, burglary at a convenience store. But a burglary at a convenience store is not a uh, an offense that needs to be dealt with with lethal force. No. Like, if you don't catch him, you just keep working on catch him. Like, if he flees, 
he doesn't present enough danger to the lives of the community that you shoot him, which is normally the justification for shooting a suspect when they're fleeing or they're uh, fleeing is that if they were to let, you know, be flee that they would, you know, present an immediate danger to the community and the lives of the community, which he did not. So it's just, it, and, and it, my third point is that, you know, it seems like in the United, you know, in the United States, we have made a lot of progress on race. We have like a lot of people have a lot of, you know, new opinions that are much more uh, friendly to African-Americans. But it just seems like there's still this small group of people who will do these heinous acts that you know can happen at any time but then the real crime is that we don't throw the full weight of the law against those people it gets murky and that's the real sin is that you know if something like this were to ha- you know if something like this happened it's bad no matter what but what makes it worse is the lack of response from the justice system that Either A, you know, they don't bring charges, B, they, they're slow and don't put the full weight behind it, or C, they give some credence to the perpetrators because of, you know, the aforementioned somewhat weird, you know, uh, circumstances, but that still don't justify a murder in any way. So that's, like, that's the real... I mean... No, the real part is that this man died. That's that's the real part. And but it we just, should be able to do better. It just yeah. stings even more when murderers can walk with impunity because their victims are black. And for what it's worth, the Department of Justice is opening an investigation into the slow response to arrest the McMichaels, but... Uh, I agree, Joe. It just fits this pattern of absolutely inadequate response in a way that makes these wounds fester. Yeah, it's a it's a tough time. And I, I would hate to be a young black man in America because it seems like the world is very dangerous for them very dangerous and it's it's for me my life has been almost completely not dangerous like i don't live in any sort of fear that you know somebody's going to come along and do something to me but uh we see time and time again that these young black men oftentimes are seen as predators or malicious or whatever. And then people decide to take action on them, whether or not that's true or whether or not, you know, even those traits would merit action like that. So. And I think it's, it's tough to sort of conceptualize because for you and me, our chances of being murdered either by a police officer or by some other bullshit vigilante asshole is practically zero. And the odds for any given black man to have this happen is also relatively low, but it's astronomically higher than for you and I who are white. And so I think it's very easy for some people to brush that off. 
but every single story like Ahmad's and like Trayvon's and like Eric Gardner's is a human life that has been extinguished. And I just hope that, listeners, you will not forget these lives. Yeah, or, I mean, I'm even thinking, you know, like Philando Castile was killed in a traffic stop um, because the police officer thought he was reaching for a gun, and who knows what the traffic stop was for, but, like, that's a way different experience from like last year when I got pulled over for expired plates, which I totally had and I got pulled over. The officer was like, uh, you know, you got expired plates. And I was like, yes, I'm going to get them fixed tomorrow. And then he was like, okay. And just let me go. And nothing happened from that. Whereas, you know, most black people, it seems to be when they get pulled over, they don't, they aren't granted that same clarity or they're, you know, harassed more. Um, it's just a different experience and it's tough to reconcile. It is. And like I said, as tough as it is, I don't think that we do anyone any justice by not talking about it, by not bringing it to light. And this is what I could do. This is... This is what I wanted to talk about, and um, it's far from over. Everything here is far from over, and I just genuinely hope that stories like this will continue to motivate us all to seek social justice. Yeah. And, you know, I know you, you've, like, tried to wrap up twice now, but I have another thought. <laughs> um, Go ahead. Is that it seems to be, like, we, we had a whole episode about the issues of our American democracy and how they don't seem to be working correctly. But, man, it sure, like, it also seems like we're going through a crisis of justice in this country where so many people are locked up and... You know, even if things do go to trial, you know, there are plea deals, but then, you know, they go further. And then there's all these issues with, you know, the police agencies not using good evidence or coercing people. It just it seems like there is a lot in American society, the institutions of American society that are not reconciling things in a way that we find satisfactory. And I feel like that, I mean, Either we need to get back to aspiring to our greater principles or find a new way to go about it. Yeah. So, the whole damn thing needs some work. Yes, it does. So that, yes, so that, it does. That's, that, that's my last thought. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, then I guess I am entitled to ask Joe. Evan. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about something that is not as grim, but it's also grimmer than you would think. And that's sugar. Sugar, guys. It's in everything. So last week after, like the day after we recorded the podcast, um, I had a bit of a binge, you know? I mean, last week we talked about Adele being skinny and controversies or not. 
And I found myself, you know, kind of doing a binge. And I had <laughs> I had uh, gotten to the end of the second liter of soda I was going to drink that day. And I thought, this makes me just feel shitty. Why am I doing this? And then I remembered some video that I had seen um, from a channel called What I've Learned. And I'll link it down in the description. And it was about sugar and why it's so deadly or, or why it's addictive. And so, I mean, there's a whole complex, you know, neural reason why sugar is addictive and why it's and reasons why it's bad but the the thing that caught me the most is this kind of dosage uh you know explanation or concentration explanation so the author or the the maker of the video posits that the reason why sugar is so addictive is because we are receiving it at a much higher dose than we ever would naturally. So he brings out examples that, um, so coca leaves, which are the uh, primary ingredient for making cocaine, are non, you know, it, people chew on it, coca leaves, and it's non addictive, gives a little bit of energy. And is clearly seen as not too much of an issue other than maybe mangling the teeth of the people who chew it incessantly. Or there is opium, which there is some discussion about the opium plant, if you smoke it, whether it is truly addictive or not. Um, some believe it is and some believe it isn't. But then if you distill it down into morphine, that was very addictive for people when that was first introduced. And then you distill it down further into heroin, which is a much more concentration, higher concentration of the active ingredients in morphine that is highly addictive. We know that it's highly addictive. And um, people, when exposed to heroin, have a much harder time getting off of it than they would uh, just smoking some opium, at least that the way it goes, the way it's explained. So sugar is an inch, you know, it is very distilled. It is a concentrated product. So when you have a sugar cane, um, I believe when you have a like stock of sugar cane, about 20% of it is this kind of juice that comes out. And in that juice, about 3% of that is the sugar or maybe somewhere somewhere some percentage but the regardless the amount of uh the sugarcane plant that is actually sugar that we actually eat is actually like two or three percent of the overall sugarcane plant now if you were to eat some sugarcane plant you know, there's tons of fiber that comes with it and you would be chewing for a long time and it would be mildly sugary. But when you distill it down to just plain, you know, table sugar, then it's this concentrated product that makes it much easier to get addicted to because whenever you're receiving it, you're getting it in such high dosages so all right i don't want to i don't want to derail this here and i definitely can't mm -hmm. speak to the science of it but 
when I was on the island of St. Lucia a few years back, they served us a large lunch that featured a number of items, including freshly cut sugarcane. And there's mm-hmm. definitely something to it being extremely fibrous. It was very difficult to bite into. But when I did bite down and I unlocked that sugary water, it was the sweetest fucking thing I had ever tasted. And I immediately spat it out. It was insane. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I was wrong in that that description of sugarcane. But anyway. So, but then sugar has became you know, is everywhere in our society. And you're getting it at dosages that are way higher than the body really knows how to deal with without all the associated fiber that comes with it. You know, there were in the video, they also, uh, suppose, you know, alcohol. So if you drink a few beers, you know, there's some alcohol in it and you'll probably get drunk, but you're not going to get crazy drunk and it's a lot harder to get addicted to alcohol through drinking beer not to say that people don't but if you were to drink the amount of alcohol to satiate an alcoholic through beer you got to drink a whole lot which is a limiting factor but if you do it through hard alcohol you don't have to consume a whole lot to have a detrimental effect so with the concentration of sugar it's almost like at every meal that we have like a sugary beverage or a sugary dessert or have a candy bar or something. It would be like if you were to take just like a shot of whiskey at every meal. And, you know, having one soda isn't an issue. Having two sodas isn't an issue. But where it becomes an issue is when it's over a thousand sodas over the course of a year where you're having it every, you know, every day or with every meal or just having it habitually. Like people who habitually drink to get drunk, you know, on a regular daily basis have tend to have health issues because of it. So the same goes with sugar. It seems to be that sugar is one of the major players in um these diseases of metabolic issues such as diabetes or hypertension, um, which I recently learned treating those disease accounts for about, I mean, not those two disease specifically, but um, diseases dealing with metabolic issues account for about 75% of all healthcare spending in the U S and there was a study that was done a meta study of all across the world of people and their diets. And it was found that if a population on average ate 150 more calories a day, there was a 0.1% increase in type two diabetes. But if those calories came from sugar, like a can of soda, 150 calories more a day from sugar, increase the rate of diabetes to be 1.1%, which is an 11-fold increase. So I am very concerned now about the effects of sugar. And because it's everywhere, 
Like I have done so many diets in my time and so many of them have included sugar, like just blatant amounts of sugar that you don't like track. And it just, it, it's crazy to me now. I, I'm pretty convinced that sugar is the reason for most of our metabolic issues that include obesity and, you know, heart issues and all that stuff. You know, not to say that that didn't happen before the widespread availability of sugar and everything, but it happened at much lesser rates. People didn't die of heart disease mostly before like the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, that just wasn't as much of an issue. People didn't die from, you know, diet or not as many people got diabetes because um, people weren't exposed to as much sugar. So, I mean, maybe the, I'm, there are so many things that I've learned in the last week about sugar and it just, you know, and I feel like I had known most of them before, but for whatever reason, something just clicked. So I've been mostly sugar free for the last week now and I've felt better. Um, it is definitely difficult because like they have, like I've said many times, sugar is in everything. Sugar is in every bread. Sugar is in every processed food that you enjoy, like Cheez-Its. Why is there sugar in Cheez-Its? But there is. Um, Calling me out because I had Cheez-Its for lunch. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> like, hell, I would love to have some Cheez-Its just without the sugar in it. So I have gone away from most added sugars. And I mean, I'm not, I've lost a little bit of weight, but it's too early to tell. I feel better, but who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe that's just some things going the right way or whatever. But I'm going to try and stick with this long term because, you know, they people say again and again that sugar have has no nutritional value and it doesn't. And the daily guideline for the amount of sugar you're supposed to take in is 25 grams, which a can of Coke has 36 grams of sugar. So, you know, someday I'll have sugar again as like a treat at a holiday, but then it'll be that, a treat. But we now live in a world where sugar is not a treat. It's our daily lives. It's the daily foods that we eat. It's in the health, quote, healthy yogurt that has as much sugar as a donut. It's in the Pop-Tarts that we eat that are not healthy in any way, just loaded of sugar. It's in the sugary cereals that we eat. It's in the soda that we have with almost every fast food meal that we ever consume. It's in the dough of every bread that we eat because it turns out that there really aren't any sugar-free breads. And, and sugar substitutes um, end up being just as bad just because of some of the mechanics that what makes sugar bad for you. So I am trying to get rid of sugar. I'm learning more about it. Maybe I'll have a big crusade against it someday. But um, be aware of sugar, and I'll put some videos in the uh, in the description of what made me see some sort of light during this. It's just very difficult because what is a food manufacturer's job? 
it's to sell food. And we know that sugar is like this concentrated hit. And even if you, even if it's a product like Cheez-Its or bread where the sugar isn't integral to the taste, just its presence there makes your brain respond favorably, creates a craving, and in taste tests will have you rate the food as tasting better, even if there's no change to the actual flavor, and the sugar is the only difference. So foods that have added sugars sell better, and there's really no countervailing market force to stop this from happening, and so... If you want to be aware of it, it really does fall entirely on the consumer to make the conscious choice, as Joe is deciding to do, and for which I applaud him. Well, and also, um, I don't know how long ago this was implemented, but they uh, nutrition labels are now required to have... uh, added sugar label it's it's buried but in the kind of carbohydrate section where you'll find the sugars um you'll also find an added sugars column that or row that will give you the amount of added sugar in each serving but also to be aware the way to truly know if there is added sugar in it is to go to the ingredients list and see if sugar or any version of sugar is on the ingredients list, which there are many types, but most people, most uh, products that I've looked at will have either like sugar or high fructose corn syrup listed as an ingredient, which are an easy tell of what is a sugar, what is an added sugar. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's almost anything that you buy at the store. And that was one, uh, one point is that like the, you know, the food industry, yeah, all those processed foods, they sell super well, they're super convenient, but they get you hooked because of that. Like there would be a big outcry if we put a little bit of cocaine in everybody's food, like, (laughs) That would be seen as outlandish, like, oh, just a little cocaine to make it a little, you know, give you a little more pep. Like, no, that's crazy. And then it being everywhere. Like, I think the biggest issue I have is that I don't have an issue with people consuming sugar or sugar being available for everybody. But the the let me put it this way. The health effects aren't wide known because, you know. You have like a beer and you get drunk. You're like, oh, I don't want to do that. But you have a sugary drink and then you just kind of feel hungry later. Like that's not as big of a immediate health concern that people understand. And you can have sugar in moderation and it be completely normal. But for some people or for a good number of people, having a high amount of sugar triggers something in their body that triggers Um, you know, whether it be obesity or fatty liver or fatty brain disease that really deteriorates their health. And we don't know quite what that trigger mechanism is, but we know that sugar can trigger it. Uh, 
and high dosages of it over a long period of time, which we now have. So it's uh, stay away from sugar if you can. I'm not going to be one of those people that uh, shames you about having sugar, but um, I think it would be best for most people's health to get rid of sugar, even though it's super great. Um, it does taste really good. I do wish I could have a soda. You know, I had a, uh, I found that at McDonald's, if you get like a chicken McNuggets meal with French fries, that doesn't have any sugar in it, but it was super having boring. It was super boring having nuggets with no sauce on it or no soda to like go between the savory and the, uh, the savory and the sweet. Um, so it was, it was actually, you know, I can eat a lot of food, but when I had a 10 piece nugget and a large fry, it was actually kind of hard to eat it because I didn't want to eat it all because I did not have like that satisfying change in the palate, um, that most people have or those contrasting flavors. It was just kind of boring and I didn't want to have all of it. (laughs) So it's, uh. I'll in the future I'll report back on how it's going, but uh, for right now it seems to be going all right. Now another aspect of this that you have talked about before is how it impacts children. Do you want to do you want to pull that apart a little bit here? Oh yeah. So like the way I like to think of it is that you would never like give children a shot of whiskey. You don't give drugs to children. You ha- you're very scared that they may have those because we know that as children, you can become addicted to something so much easier and then or more easily. But then if you get addicted as a child, that addiction will most likely stay with you for the rest of your life in some way. It'll be something that you have to fight for the rest of your life. And we are just letting children have drugs. And that drug is sugar. You know, I recently learned that uh, when they circumcise babies, that they give them a pacifier with a super concentrated sugar solution and that distracts them enough from getting circumcised um that you know they don't cry or act up too much that sugar is powerful enough to sedate a baby from part of it literally getting cut off so we are giving kids a lot of sugar like way way more than that they should have like a, a can of soda is way over an adult's daily allotted amount of sugar. It is so much over a child's daily allotted amount of sugar. But we still let these kids have them. And we target all of these candies and uh, pastries and just sugary foods towards them because, of course, they like it. Because it's delicious, but they're children. They don't know any better. And because if you're a child 
and you are exposed to high amounts of sugar, like we mentioned before, you know, it can trigger obesity. If you trigger obesity in a child, that sets them up for a whole host of issues later on in life if they're not able to tackle the obesity during childhood. It sets up the child having, you know, having lots of uh, issues with eating and dieting and and just sets them up for failure. We don't want obese children. So like one thing that I think back to a conversation we talked about is that we should be able to provide nutritious meals at school to all children that don't have sugar in them. Like um, if you're, you know, cooking the food on your own, it's actually not too hard to make food or cook your own food without sugar in it. You just have to be mindful of it. And even then, some of the, you know, the small amounts of sugar that are available in food as added sugars, for the most part, if you have them in moderation, aren't too bad for you. It's just that we allow kids to have like soda with their meals or even least um, fruit juice is the same issue because you're getting a concentrated dose of it without the fiber or I had chocolate milk with just about every meal I had growing up. So um, we should really work on getting rid of uh, sugar in children's diets at least. But um, it seems like we're not quite there yet, but it's something that we should fight for. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's a noble goal. It's extraordinarily difficult, especially with more and more people becoming reliant on quicker, faster, cheaper foods that maybe you don't always have the time and wherewithal to be your own dietitian and nutritionist. But, um, you know, that that's doesn't mean that we shouldn't respect calls to think more carefully about the foods that we eat and the foods that we feed our children. Especially the foods that we feed our children. Um, yeah, adults do whatever, but make sure, sh- you know, I, I can't help but think about how much of uh, my personal life story feels uh, in line with the sentiment that I grew up on the same block as a donut shop. Um, <laughs> Sweetos, good callback. It, it's uh, it almost seems like a uh, you know, inciting event in my life, or uh, characteristic. It's a base trait. Oh, Joe, he in grew the up no- on the same block as a donut shop. In in the novel of your life, that's one of the central metaphors. Yeah, well, and then also <laughs> those donuts made back in the day were probably made with tons of trans fat which we knew which we know is bad for your health in you know large chronic usage which we do with sugar now and sugar also has tons of these bad outcomes but we were able to get rid of trans fats and now we need to get rid of sugar as well or at least extremely limit it so yeah, uh, bring back Sweetos. I miss. Uh, oh, I wish. I miss having people smoking while they're making donuts. It uh, <laughs> it imparts a very distinct flavor.
So after two weeks of having actual main topics, um, we're back to COVID-19 grab bag. Um, so we are now weeks further into the COVID-19 crisis. Today, we passed 90,000 deaths in the U.S., and it's real concerning because, well, it has been concerning, but we still do not have a plan for what to do. Um, no plan for how to move forward. And there's no plan to mitigate the disease other than possibly stay at home more. And... As this is going on today, Trump decided to announce that he's taking uh, hydroxychloroquine, which is that drug that earlier in the coronavirus was thought to maybe possibly help fighting against it. He says he's taken it proactively, which, whether it's true or not, is just absolutely insane. So... The kind of thrust of this is that, at least right now, we are at a lack of leadership at this time because Trump has pretty much made it clear that he doesn't want to deal with any of the details of this crisis whatsoever. He doesn't want to make a plan. He doesn't want to enforce a plan. He just wants it to maybe if he ignores it, ignores it enough that he could claim no responsibility for it and skate by. And I, I just think about what leadership means and especially during a time of crisis. So during this time, there have been, I'll say there there have been a lot of wrong answers, but all the ways forward have been kind of, there was no silver bullet. Like there has never been a, a one solution that is clear cut for all that makes everything good and everything better. But there have been a lot of, plans that have been put forward that, you know, make concessions and choices about what needs to be done. And that's what a leader does. A leader makes the tough decisions, weighs the, you know, weighs the situation, weighs the evidence and makes a decision on where to go. And notably, our president has just decided to not make any decisions and just kind of do whatevs. And I just find this so like, you know, I already wasn't sold on Trump, but just as time goes on that even still there aren't any plans there aren't any ways forward there isn't the comforting he's not even you know hell we went bonkers during the obama administration because some uh you know wrong decision made in leadership led to four americans dying in benghazi 90,000 people have died in the united states and it's almost just seems passive you know 
blase at this point. Like, oh yeah, they were going to die. We all saw it coming. The, the date, you know, the amount dying every day hasn't changed. So 90,000 will be a hundred thousand. And we all but expect, you know, getting almost, you know, anywhere between a hundred and two thousand deaths. And I just wish that there was some goddamn urgency with what's going on. Mm-hmm. It, uh, I think it sometimes is helpful if you can find statistics that sort of clarify what is going on. Some Sometimes important and relevant and properly applied statistics can be very persuasive. And I think this one is especially telling when we look at the comparative response. The United States has 5% of the world's population. We have 32% of the world's COVID-19 cases. This is not a matter of a media hit job. This is not the natural progression of the disease. This is as clearly cut and dried mismanagement as you're ever going to find. Yeah, and it's tough. And part of what brings this on is that some states are starting to reopen, at least partially. But the the concern is that they're just kind of opening without a real plan to make sure that the disease doesn't spread a whole lot more than it already has. Like, like we said before, we, we understand that economic issues are public health issues and that, you know, the economy needs to get going in some sort of way for people to feel some sort of normalcy in their lives and for them to be able to get back to work, to earn money and all that fun stuff. But there needed to be some backdrop in which the, you know, whatever level the government in general needed to help ensure that people will feel safe when they go and do it. And currently they have done very little. Very I find little it interesting. All. I find it interesting that this week, finally, Barack Obama weighed in and directly criticized Trump, saying that his handling of the coronavirus was a disaster, essentially, and also taking veiled shots at him in his online commencement address that he did for, I guess, the, all of the seniors everywhere who are well, at home. Well, isn't it the thing that has been going on with the Trump administration since he is so bad and morally depraved that anytime you talk about um, positive moral traits or, you know, good characters and leaders, you're like, somehow taking a dig at Trump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, even if not directly, it's like talking about the the moral, you know, we have to have morality and we have to see the greater picture and have foresight and do what we can to help people. And it's like, oh, so you're just digging on Trump. It's like, no, these are just universally good traits to have. Yeah, tell, telling on yourself a little bit there when you jump immediately to Critiques of bad things are critiques of the president specifically. Yeah. So, oh yeah, Obama has uh, started to step in a little bit. Um, I and it's also telling that 
Um, President Trump also is trying to find any damn story to distract, you know, get the media to be distracted from COVID-19 and his response. Like he has started to tweet out and push Obama gate, which just seems to be a ploy for the media to start looking into allegations against Obama, which no one has really truly said what they are, but other than, Oh, it's bad. Oh, you know, we all know what he did, what he did. Oh, you think what I've done is bad? Oh, what Obama did was bad. And, or, uh, what was it? The other day he, uh, accused Joe Scarborough of being a murderer, you know, (laughs) just casually the president accusing a private citizen of being a murderer, you know, that's just Tuesday. That's just what we do now. And we don't even look into it. We're just like, eh, what's he getting up to today? What well, uh, certain, what crazy bullshit is he trying to say today? At a certain point, there's no marginal benefit to getting any more upset at the next thing that Trump does or says. At the end of the day, yeah, we kind of know, you know, some people want to vote him out. Some people want to keep him back in. And there's really, I don't think there's too many people whose minds are going to be changed by anything that Trump or the big bad media or any other entity says or does between now and November. It's actually kind of almost a really draining and annoying sense of running out the clock. Well, I mean, but it's, I, I have seen some things that, um, it does appear that it is starting to have some effects on Trump, his response. Um, so it's not directly in like his favorability numbers, but there has been a marked change in how one of his key demographics, the, the older voter, um, have, been switching over to favoring Biden in the next election versus Trump. Um, so, and I said the vague number of older voter because different pollsters measure it differently, but in the kind of 50 year old and up demographic, which was very important for Trump's win, uh, in 2016, at least currently he's uh he's either at parity with uh Joe Biden in the polls or uh Joe Biden leads by like a point or two with that demographic because it it's <laughs> i'd imagine for those people um the strategy of let's uh let grandma die so we can go to Denny's isn't super popular with grandma. Um, and it does, who knows? I mean, it does seem like this could lead to something. Um, it does seem like some people, their minds are being made up or are changing on where they stand on him. Um, so I don't think it's completely foregone yet that this is just going to be another blip in his career. Because this time it's 
it's uh, having a real tangible effect on certain populations that until recently supported him. I guess you are uh, a little bit more optimistic on trusting those poll numbers than I am, but I I hope you're right. That's all I can say, man. I hope you're right. Yeah. Because, I mean, another point that I have seen people make a lot is that, like, in other countries, he, um, the leaders, even uh, countries that have had somewhat worse uh, COVID-19 responses, I mean, not worse compared to the United States, but, you know, worse than average, still got massive uh, approval rating bumps. And Trump did not. He got like maybe three points. Whereas, you know, every governor in the nation has gotten massive bumps in their their favorability and their job approval numbers. So... (laughs) He is not skirting by, but it's still concerning that, you know, we're getting this. There's still just this kind of percentage that seems to, you know, no matter what, but there could just be, you know, even if they don't approve of him, they are just like playing for the team and just being like, okay, I'm just going to just say yes, even though I don't. So who knows? But it's just this is this comes down to it this is the job of the president is to be the leader of the country and you know in times of crisis provide you know an idea of what's going on and he just hasn't at all um which is like um there has been more talk in the realm of in comparisons to the fifth risk um you know, here we are on the fifth risk show um, <laughs> with Joe and Evan. But, um, you know, there is this Ezra Klein piece that came out today that, you know, as presidents, it seems like their biggest job is just managing a big portfolio of risks like a financial crisis or a pandemic or, you know, killer wasps coming from another country. Um that's what they do is they manage those risks to try and make sure that they don't happen. And you'll never know if a successful administration took the risk of killer wasps from being a one in 10 chance to a one in 50 chance. Um, You'll just never know, but it sure does seem like in Trump's presidency, he's taken a lot of things that were relatively low risk, like maybe a one in 50 or one in a hundred chance of happening and turn it up a whole lot to, you know, like a one in 10 chance or a one in five chance. And, you know, that's another thing to think about. Yeah. I read that, uh, Ezra Klein piece today as well. And it really got me thinking about this, paradox that we have in our own evaluative decision making where on one hand you have to evaluate things by their outcomes but on the other hand when it comes to items that are perhaps more based in risk and probability 
you don't necessarily get a full picture of all of the contributive actions based solely on the outcome. So that's been definitely something I have been pondering because the, the, the point the article makes is that politicians are elected based on observable statistics such as did unemployment go down? Did GDP go up? What what are the markers that we can tangibly feel? But what ultimately may be more important in a presidential legacy is what types of risks did they mitigate and what types of risks did they fail to assess? Uh, you've brought it up before, Joe, how... Um, Bill Clinton's policy in the Middle East led to terrorist activity that took place on the watch of other presidents. And our electoral politics in that way is very slow to respond to some of the most consequential actions of the executive branch. Yeah, it's like there aren't too many takes out there that blame Bill Clinton for 9-11, at least not directly. And I mean, I'll also say that not too many people actually blame anyone in the United States for uh, 9-11, but um, it does seem like the, uh, you know, the actions taken by the Clinton administration had a bigger role than the inaction of the Bush regime um, that followed. But I mean, that can be debated, but... Um, well, because it's impossible it to quantify. It wasn't just solely could, Bush. Yeah, well, yeah. You, you, you could say it, but if someone else interprets the events differently, you, you kind of reach an yeah. impasse. Yeah. Um, you know, I recently listened to a podcast where there is some concern of whether we have entered a new Cold War with China. Now, it could be the fact that, you know, people are wanting, trying to see something in this, but, you know, we had, um, you know, we had a tough relationship with China, you know, at least in the Obama, Obama administration and earlier where things were, you know, they were never tense, but, you know, neither one was quite getting what they wanted. And there was always tensions and, you know, stuff like that. And then, Trump brought it to the forefront like he was going to take on China as a state and as like a a problem. And through that, you know, he ratcheted up tensions with China by uh, by, you know, having the trade war and, you know, all the hostile words that he's taken towards uh, President Xi, which, you know, some days it's hostile, some days it's congratulatory, basically based on how well things are going for Trump himself. But so that's one realm where we ratcheted up the risk of, you know, issues with China by a lot in the last three or four years where we went from taking some people's you know, you could have disagreements of how we were handling China before, but now we've swung so far the other direction that it becomes a real risk that it could become uh, a real issue for us and a real danger further down the road. Um, 
Now, things are a little bit different than when, you know, we had a Cold War with the Soviet Union. Um, but nonetheless, there's still this risk that we've opened up that didn't really need to be taken. And I think that's all extraordinarily valid, but I do want to pivot just a little bit here because it seems like we've settled on talking a lot about leadership and specifically about the lack of leadership coming from the president. But who would you spotlight as a valuable leader during this time? Who has been a valuable leader? I've heard a lot of good about uh, Gavin Newsom in uh, California, who has been uh, taking on the crisis seriously. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci has been a good one. I just watched a video on him and uh, what he's been doing and as a science communicator, but you know, he's not everything. Um, Angela Merkel of Germany has been great for Germany. Um, has done real great there, but that's not in the U.S. It doesn't have to be um, in the U.S. And, I mean, we're taking a holistic yeah. view here. Yeah. Um, what was it? Uh, Governor Mike DeWine of uh, Ohio has been gotten been getting good marks for being a Republican, but taking it seriously. Pritzker, I you know from what I've seen and. Illinois seems to have been doing a good job of taking it seriously. Maybe, you know, we're starting to see that maybe there are some people who are getting a little too, uh, little too willing to keep the economy locked down. But again, we have lacked the leadership from above to actually, uh, you know, be able to adequately deal with, uh, reopening. So, it's been a tough one. Someone who I've someone who I've admired from the non-political round uh, non-political realm is Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner. I think that he really set the tone for how private organizations should take these threats seriously as soon as the first NBA player tested positive for COVID, he shut everything down. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about who could get tests and how that was all stratified along privilege gradients, and that's all very valid. But he made sure that NBA players were able to get tested and that he would not have his league become a source of greater spread because it not only shut down the spread that started from the Utah Jazz and that uh, absolute dickhead Rudy Gobert, but other sports leagues kind of had the ball pushed into their court and understood that they also had to take these threats seriously. And, you know, who knows what would have happened to the Major League Baseball season had Silver not stepped up and said, listen, we have to sacrifice this sports season for the greater public health. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of sports, it's interesting how, um, (laughs) as this goes on, it seems like points that we made on this podcast earlier on in the coronavirus get picked up by other people. So this week, uh, 
uh, John Oliver did a big piece on, you know, the effect on sports that coronavirus is having. Oh, you better believe which, I uh, watched that. Yep. <laughs> which, uh, huh. I wonder who talked about it first. <laughs> Listen, guys, I, I don't want to toot our own horn here, but I do believe that on many topics, adequately informed is ahead of the general media curve. Recommend us to your friends. Yes. Uh, you want to hear it first? It wasn't this episode, but other times we've been first. <laughs> um. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe one of our one-off tangents here will become the big media narrative in the next couple of weeks. Who knows? You just got to keep listening to find out. Yeah, you got to find out what our weird tangents go into and find out that it was valid. <laughs> um, because, yeah, definitely these uh, these sports leagues are having issues. But and I'm, I mean, once again, I mean, we've beaten it to death, but the economics of uh, of it all, like um, just all the people who you know, their main job was catering to sports venues, whether it be, you know, directly at the venue or, you know, they were a guy who sold hot dogs outside the the stadium on a street cart. I mean, they're just missing out on that money bigly. Um, and, you know, everybody's, a whole lot of people are hurting during this. Um I feel very fortunate that I am not having any issues right now, but I recognize that a whole lot of people, their lives are very much turned upside down and people very much have a right to be upset or want to try and open up the economy. But at this point, it doesn't seem like at least the just blanket, no restrictions open up is the greatest idea. But because we have lacked the leadership on what a reopening would look like, we're stuck with it. I think uh, it was a really good line from Ezra Klein's piece where he wrote, because we haven't had adequate leadership to provide us a middle ground, we're stuck between the choice of infinite lockdown or irresponsible reopening. And that is what it feels like. The lockdown measures were supposed to be temporary, to give us time to forge that middle path, to install contact tracing, to scale up testing capabilities. But because that wasn't done, now we do face that dire choice where to follow public health regulations to the letter of the law requires additional lockdown, which is just going to keep hammering people. But at the same time, Reopening and easing those economic burdens will still perpetuate this public health crisis, which has not been addressed. So it's uh, it's going to be tough. There, there was some positive news regarding a successful vaccine in a very limited trial. We're not close to having this thing solved, but it is nice to hear about some even small amount of good medical news. Yeah. Yeah, that is good news, but we're still, uh, we're still quite a far way out and uh, it's, uh, and you know, I, I feel like I've keep saying this point, but it's like, we're, we're having to let the people decide 
what like there is way more room in this for people to make their own decisions and you know what to do just based on the information that they've gathered like you know i i believe people should be able to make some of their own choices but um in this it's not fully informed like you know do i have a concrete plan to get our country back up and going no but i'm not the one tasked with that i'm tasked with getting groceries to grocery stores um I and it's not for really anybody else to make that call besides the minds of our society and the people in leadership. And so what people in leadership should have been doing for the last two months is trying to crack the egg of how can we have a system in the United States, you know, with our own cultural values and all that stuff to ensure that people are safe when they, we somewhat reopen the economy and that work just hasn't been done. And now everybody starts pointing to all the other countries on how they do it. And it's like, Oh, we should do that or do this, which, you know, I mean, if it works, it works, but I mean, we're a different country. We have our own values and we should have been working out our own plan, but now we're all just kind of scratching our heads. Like, what do we do? And a culture of, such rugged individuality is uniquely susceptible to public health and communicable disease issues because even under a context of effective leadership, which we understand that we're not in, but even under those circumstances, people still may disregard the advice of experts. This past weekend, I was in attendance at a drive-in movie theater because if you stay in your car, there's no possibility of social contact and it's allowed in Indiana for the facilities to open up again. And they assured me that they are taking precautions. And although I had a great time and it was, it was a lot of fun to be able to go to a drive-in and like experience a movie again, I was a little bit horrified by what I saw, they say in there, they give you a, a special piece of paper when you enter talking about new uh, COVID restrictions. And some of them they enforced, they are only taking food orders through an app and they are limiting bathroom access to five people at a time, which was more or less enforced. But they also said that anytime you're out of your car, you were required to wear a mask and I would say that mask participation was under 50%. We wore our masks and everything, but that <laughs> it's, it's, it's not super effective unless you get a widespread buy-in on mask wearing. And it just wasn't happening. Or um, another issue is that these facilities are only supposed to open at 50% capacity, but this was a drive-in with four screens and when you buy your ticket they don't ask you which screen you're going to so we went to probably what was the most popular screening and there's no way that that screen was at 50 percent capacity even in a drive-through so or a drive-in i always call drive-ins drive-throughs i can't I, it's mm-hmm. never going to change drive-through uh, movie <laughs> and so it's just 
very frustrating when people's ideas of freedom are entirely divorced from their ideas of responsibility and collective good. Well, and I I still can't help but think that, I mean, we'd be better on the mask situation if the damn president would be wear a mask. Like, yeah, absolutely. He, he has made the decision not to ever wear a mask. And I was like, I don't want people to see me with wearing one. And like, like, what's the issue that people would get a sense that they should take this seriously or, you know, people joke. But the kind of idea of does wearing a mask make you seem emasculine? <laughs> um you know, the mask isn't for you. It's for everybody else. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I can't, you know, at least in the state of polarization in the United States, I feel like there could have been a opportunity for a, a very good response that you wouldn't have had if, say, maybe a Democrat was the president because, um, you know, I like to think that the the kind of Democrats or more left leaning people would take this seriously no matter what, mm-hmm. and um, that there seems to be a portion where even if the uh, the Trump administration is taking it somewhat seriously, as some of his followers don't seem to be. Um, so it could have been if, you know, Trump had taken it seriously and conveyed to, you know, people who followed him to take it seriously, then we could have had a situation where everybody took it seriously. But that did not happen. Yeah. And I definitely believe that polarization is very important in this. And I'm not trying to share this anecdote in a way to undermine the salience of polarization in the response to coronavirus, but just because I find it extraordinarily humorous. One person at the drive-in was wearing a mask when based on the shirt that they were wearing, I wouldn't have thought that they would wear a mask. I thought they would have ended up on the other side of polarization because the shirt of this mask wearer said, guns don't kill people, Clintons kill people. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, imagine that guy would wear a mask either. <laughs> yeah, but he did. He was on board. <laughs> uh, sometimes you never know. But the uh, the evidence on polarization is pretty clear, all humorous stories aside. Um, one little thing I wanted to tease out. Well, I mean, this goes back to uh, kind of like what we, we uh, said earlier about like uh, you know, racism, you know, it only takes a few people to have racist outcomes in a society. Um, you know, it really only takes a small minority of people to fuck up the whole coronavirus response. Um, it only takes a few really defiant people who don't follow the rules and go way overboard to change the path of society deal you know how they're able to deal with it if they go out and try to do their normal daily lives without wearing a mask and not taking precautions those few people can screw it up for everybody else like 
you know, we kind of imagine this in the conversation that, oh, half the people don't take it seriously and half the people do take it seriously. Where at least in polling and people, you know, who and their opinions on, you know, when we should reopen and all this stuff, it seems like at least 70 percent, if not more, take it seriously and believe in the precautions. But there's the rowdy whatever percent that don't take it seriously and they kind of muck it up for everybody else. Like, uh, recently this week in Wisconsin, where I live, the, uh, Supreme court of Wisconsin struck down the governor's, uh, continuation of the stay at home order and restrictions on businesses. So for one glorious night, a, uh, you know, a couple of the bars in town near me opened up and I, I think one of them really opened up and, you know, they drew a huge, massive crowd, which is like, ah, maybe, you know, people are so gunning to get back out that, you know, they, this bar got filled up and, you know, if we did it all across everywhere, all the bars would fill up. But, you know, I'm thinking, what if that bar just happened to get all the people in the area who were willing enough to go out? Mm-hmm. Like, if you made it more widespread, that you would just have a lot of empty bars um, with nobody really wanting to go because of fear, because there's only a small group of people who are, you know, feel comfortable enough going out. Exactly. Or that same core constituency spread out across different bars in the area. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) it still just feels like we're, uh, we're very far away, and I can't help but think 90,000 people have passed away because of this disease. You can't tell me there wasn't more that we could have done. Like, there was so much more that we could have done. We could have taken it so much more seriously. We could have, you know, I like the rant from other times. I believe that in the United States, we have the capacity to do just about anything. And we have just decided not to this time. Um, The greatest threat that has hit this nation since 9-11, and we've let, oh, I don't know, about 30 9-11s happen on our own populace because of this disease. It's just, it's unfortunate. It is. To say the least. It, It really is. And like you said... Not, not a lot we can do as the citizenry. It's uh, the most effective to come from the top down. Yeah. Or uh, <laughs> maybe we should uh, follow Barack Obama's advice in his one word tweet that, you know, some would, you know, see as subtweeting, but uh, vote. Yep. Um, that's, that's what we can do. It is. Yeah. Um, Yeah, now uh, we got to go and figure out some constitutional fixes. Coming up next week on Adequately Informed, Evan and Joe fix the Constitution. We we fixed the Constitution, (laughs) guys. We did it. We did it. We solved democracy. But next week, did we did we solve the democracy for realists or idealists? Mm. I think 
quite frankly, I know this is a joke, but any any uh, any form of democracy, I believe, has to be taken or formed in the realist camp and can't be formed on idealist. <laughs> um, like if you if part of your uh, democracy is contingent on people acting in good faith, you may have an issue. Uh, whatever do you mean yeah (laughs) it may be uh huh yeah if it's based on uh honor hmm what happens when people don't have honor although it's based on norms and guardrails hmm yeah you know since we're uh since we're in grab bag territory uh this week Mitch McConnell actually apologized for something. I know. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So uh, for those who don't know, Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, either a week or so ago, made a comment that the Obama administration left no plan for the uh, for the cur- or uh, for, a you know, a pandemic like this. And they did. And it came to light. And Mitch McConnell actually apologized for <laughs> saying the wrong thing, which I don't get, but uh, good for him. <laughs> I just want to kind of pick his up entire on this. MO. I want to kind of pick up on this too, because if you think it's a problem that the last guy didn't leave you any resources to face a challenge. And you spent three years also not developing any resources to meet that challenge. I think your anger is directed at the wrong person. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 This, uh, so Obama gate, Obama's going to get arrested at the night in the night. Uh, such grave things that he did where it's crazy how, like we got tricked in like or some people got tricked into thinking that like the Obama administration was so evil and that all their people in that administration were doing all this evil stuff and they were just getting away with it. They were so smart that they uh, they were able to get away with it. And now the Trump administration just does all those things blatantly. And it's like, well, no, you know, they had to have been doing it, too. We just didn't catch them. What's why should we punish them for getting caught? Like, it's just ridiculous. Like this week, Trump fired uh, an inspector general, a watchdog of the government um, because he I mean, it looks like it's because he started a an investigation into Mike Pompeo, like (laughs) who's the secretary of state. And we still don't have Trump's tax returns or how about that William Barr and the DOJ are dropping their prosecution of Mike Flynn after he pleaded guilty after he pleaded guilty yeah like after he (laughs) it's just absolutely bonkers like it's all bonkers but it's again, it's back to the Trump way of dealing with things where if you just constantly 
are making all of this noise, then you can't like finding the real stuff is going to be like you can't concentrate it, concentrate on it like you would. Mm hmm. Like, like Benghazi was the news story against Obama for months. Whereas, you know, I don't know, firing an inspector general looking into one of your top officials. Uh, it's pretty blase. 90,000 deaths. I mean, we knew we had it coming. Or like, how about, and I hate to keep bringing this up, but he was impeached. <laughs> Yeah. Impeachment yeah, we, happened. Uh, yeah, we did that recently. I feel like uh, history is going to, you know, make that a little bit more in the forefront when it's taught than, <laughs> than we feel in present times. Um, yeah, that I keep forgetting everything that fucking happens. <laughs> like it has been a wild five months so far. Yeah. This year. And we already thought it was going to be crazy. And then all of a sudden the, the damn pandemic came. <laughs> oh, man. So, I, I that feels about right. Yep, I'm satisfied. Yeah. Um, I don't think we have an end segment. So. I, don't, I don't have an end segment per se, other than to say that... For those of you still listening, I know we say this kind of a lot, but it is really sincere that if you're still listening to us, that that means a lot. And I've especially received uh, some some people reaching out recently, listeners uh, Danny H. and Spencer C. And it means a lot. I, I love hearing from you guys, and we always appreciate any feedback, formal, informal, constructive, destructive, we're we're just happy that uh, people are listening and that uh, we're not always just screaming into the void for our own amusement. Yeah, we like doing this. We're glad you like us doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, I think that uh, brings us to an end. We'd like to thank you for listening. We'd also like to thank Anthony Hish for the music, as always. And... Um, yeah, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's been Evan Kelly. We hope that you've been... Adequately informed. Hey, so. you, might have, you might have to edit this out if you find that this is not relevant enough to the conversation, but have we talked about how King Euros lives? No. My dad was in macomb for work and he found it because those people they've lived in macomb the whole time that they've had king euros and they finally decided that they were sick of the commute so they they closed the king euros in galesburg but it's they're, they're still running it just in macomb <clears throat> what a fucking proposition oh we're gonna drive to galesburg every day <laughs> i know <laughs> but he have, did it for years to run a to run a Euro stand that doesn't even have that much business. <laughs> the more I learn about that fucking business, the the more my head turns. I'm like, what? How was this ever a thing for as long as it was?
Because um, the Euro cheeseburger, man. I'll have it again someday. <laughs>